0: This podcast is brought to you by Cyberattacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security. Hello, I'm Yanit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv.
1: And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London.
0: And we are Unholy, two Jews on the News from Keshet, podcast, breaking Jonathan away from his vacation to bring you a special update on the Gaza flare-up.
1: Yeah, the best laid plans and all (laughs) that. Um, We are back because obviously the news is big and it's demanded that uh, we at least talk about it, pay attention to it. You're there, obviously. I mean, we were watching, I was watching from afar. I don't know, as you and I speak, a truce is there. It is sort of something we can talk about a bit in the past tense, but while it was happening... What was the mood there?
0: Well, first of all, I mean, we should say, right, we're recording this on a Monday afternoon. As as you said, ceasefire is holding after three, three and a half days of conflict between uh, Israel and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. We'll go into what happened and where we are right now. But you asked about the mood. And I think that we should probably tell our listeners, our listeners that don't live in Israel, right, that just how quickly... Israel kind of turns on the uh, war mode, not happily, right? Quite reluctantly. But we are so used to this, these kinds of skirmishes and flare ups and conflicts uh, with Gaza, and of course with other of our, our foes like Hezbollah, that it's just this sort of speedy deterioration into war mode. And it happens really in minutes. I think that television. I don't want to say accelerates this, but definitely illustrates this, right? Because uh, the three main networks kind of morph into this twenty-four hour news channel that broadcasts nothing, almost nothing but news. So there's no escaping this. Obviously, if you live in the southern part of of Israel, you feel it more than others. Definitely, in this conflict, uh, central Israel felt it as well. And sort of that speed in which you, everyone is so used to. I mean, this abnormal becoming the new normal. Everyone used to just the sirens and going down into the bomb shelters. It just becomes this. It's so natural, tragically natural, for you to sort of switch on that mode. It's quite the remarkable, as is the way that Israel returns to normal as quickly as that happens when it ends.
1: And you mentioned going down to the shelters, switching on the permanent rolling news coverage. It's become, I'm guessing, because this is now an annual thing, really. I mm-hmm. mean, this. even when you and I began the podcast, we talked about this uh, at a thing that would happen at intervals. It's now you can almost set your clock by it. It's an annual event. Do people, and I'm particularly thinking actually of children, do people go into a kind of routine now, a drill that they're mm-hmm. just familiar with, they know what to do?
0: You, you know, I, I felt for a moment yesterday, uh, the the news came out that there might be a ceasefire at 8.00 And you know, it's like you play the role so well, everyone knows what the script will be. Because ceasefire at eight means that the enemy you're standing across from in Gaza is going to do everything they can between seven and eight to shoot at the most important Israeli symbol, which is Tel Aviv. So you kind of know when you ask what people are used to and what children are used to, you kind of know that if there's a ceasefire at eight, there's going to be shooting at Tel Aviv. You can almost set your clock to shooting over Tel Aviv at seven. And yes, I think that there's this moment where you realize that not only for you has this become this annual event, but also for children and your children, this is pretty... And tragically, a normal situation. And, and you also think of the children on the Palestinian side and what that means for them. This sort of, of course, not real uh, normal, but th- what is this new reality and how are, are we uh, indeed locked into the situation having this uh, annually? I, I, I hope not. But this is what we've experienced uh, last year and what we're experiencing now again, a very different scale. In a this is what, enemy, no, is absolutely. We're going
1: to get into the differences in a second. But funnily enough, it was it was that picture, particularly of the children on both sides, that I mm-hmm. had in mind. The notion yeah. that you know adults have all kinds of mechanisms and coping strategies and rationalisations, but yes, Gazan and children, Israeli children, growing up with this mm-hmm. thing that happens, yeah. you know, like the changing of the seasons, that there is suddenly. War and you know fire raining from the sky and people uh, dead or injured and obviously more on the Palestinian side because of the differences in partly in defence and protection in terms of the Iron Dome and so on. But this is a very grimly sort of routine thing now for the life of the two peoples uh, involved. So we should talk about how it sort of came about. Now, you know, as you and I speak, like you said, we're at the other end of it.
0: Yep, hopefully, yes. Fingers Uh, crossed. We hope,
1: and you know, of course, like I said, best laid plan. So you can make those assumptions. But as we speak, that's how it seems. The last time there was erupted out of a standoff confrontation in Jerusalem, that was, that element from where I'm sitting seems to be missing this time. Mm -hmm. And of course, this was written up around the world as a clash between Israel and Hamas, and this time it was written up as something different. It Hamas were not, and I know this was a big part of the kind of tension about how how much this was going to develop and, ex- and escalate, but it didn't involve Hamas this time. So in that case, what was it all about?
0: Right. So this is a salient point, right? Hamas stayed out of it. That's why it's a different scale on a different scale than what we saw uh, last year, uh, Operation Guardian of the Walls, which was last year. This year, it's breaking dawn. We might say a thing or two about that. Israeli Defense Forces choosing its titles, but we might do that uh, later in the in the program. What happened now is a skirmish, a flare-up between Israel and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. We should say, by the way, brief and, of course, from the Israeli point of view, successful Israel assassinated two senior commanders of the Islamic uh, Jihad's military wing in Gaza, the commander of the northern and the southern sector, and also the commander of the organization's anti-tank unit, killed, and basically this whole thing started when Israel uh, thwarted the plan to fire anti-tank missiles at Israeli citizens. At the Gazan borders. Now, we should also mention that according to the Palestinian uh, officials, there are 44 Palestinians killed. Israelis are talking about 35 Palestinians killed. There are 15 children out of that toll. Uh, Most of the civilians are killed. Uh, not in Israeli airstrikes, but rather in uh, Palestinian uh, rockets that were misfired. And here we should make the point, Jonathan, that this, again, as we said, is a war not between Israel and Hamas, the biggest bully in town, if you uh, will, but against the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, the uh, nasty kid in in the classroom, but definitely less of a formidable uh, foe than Hamas's smaller organization less ammunition, more haphazard in its organization, that is why, you know, it's a little bit like, I, I don't know, I, I should never use sports metaphors, but this is not Israel playing in the Olympic Games against Hamas, if you will, but it's playing in the Maccabiah Games against a much smaller organization. I'm going to get into trouble for doing this, for making this comparison. Yeah, this I can imagine I'm you might.
1: <laughs> um, but, the, but I do get the point about scale. Obviously, people outside the country would say that Israel versus Hamas is itself an uneven conflict and Israel is much more uh, militarily equipped, it's the yes. bigger, has the greater firepower and so on. But didn't all this bubble up also, out Israel's of- Also, Israel's
0: not a terror organization that shoots its civilian, is if you're trying to make the point, but yes. Yeah,
1: good. just because just of your analogy about the big bully, etc. But, but just you know, just in terms of big, actually, was all I was going on. Didn't this bubble up out of action on the West Bank, between mm-hmm. Palestinian Islamic Jihad and their presence there? And that had been sort of brewing. There'd been some, some you know action in that department, in, in and around Janine, I think for a while, so there were clues that something like this was brewing.
0: Yes. First of all, we should say that the Palestinian Jihad is growing as an organization, it is really the clear Iranian proxy in uh, Gaza. So Iran is, is, is putting in more and more funds on supporting this organization. What kind of started this skirmish was, as you said, an arrest in Janine of Bassam Asadi, uh, a 62-year-old operative of Jihad who has been arrested three times before. So Israel didn't actually assume that this would create such havoc like it did, but it did. The arrest itself got messed up. There were rumors that he died while being arrested. So that started out a whole sort of uh, a plan to lash out at Israel. And then Jihad planned to, as I said, shoot these anti-tank missiles on the Gazan border. Israel decided that this will not happen and tried to take the initiative, closing down, by the way, parts of the southern part of, of Israel for three days and finally going out on the offensive and taking the initiative and attacking these commanders of the Jihad to thwart the plan to actually shoot anti-missiles at Israelis. Uh, on the border.
1: So I should say something about the difference between how this played out where you are and how it looked outside. I mean, Mm -hmm. because you were saying about how quickly Israelis, and we assume as well, Gazans, Palestinians, go on to the kind of now very familiar footing of these eruptions of conflict. And I was expecting, just in terms of coverage and reaction and response, something similar, that everyone would take up their usual familiar positions. It was interesting because partly because it was relatively short. Again, speaking in the past tense, kind of conditionally, Mm -hmm. there is a conditional past tense when speaking about these events. I was expecting um, there to be that sort of familiar response. And this time, there wasn't. And, you know, I just looked at, I was looking at sort of front pages of news websites around the world, and it tended to be that Gaza, Israel was the third story or lower down the running order it was behind ukraine it was behind noises coming out of taiwan china and it was just it was not getting the usual billing that we often say we talked about it with matty friedman on the podcast you know who is a former ap journalist in mm-hmm. jerusalem there was there is a sort of default setting for how the world's media covers violence between Israel and the Palestinians and it didn't quite go to that level and I thought there it was interesting to watch that and I thought okay give it time if it goes on longer it will and there was that sort of sense of anticipation it was partly because it was a weekend and so you know there's the full newsrooms are not in operation but I did also wonder if there was something else going on which relates to the familiarity point which is have people newsrooms included become kind of inured to this mm. And a feeling that, well, unless this gets really big, unless the death toll starts rising, unless it becomes more spectacular, unless Hamas become involved, unless it goes to day six, seven, eight, we're kind of not you know, breaking a sweat on it just yet. And I don't know if that's right. It was too small a data set. It was just two or three days. But it was just striking to me anyway that we didn't get the full court press that sometimes happens when these episodes happen? And does that perhaps suggest a small shift mm-hmm. in international media attitudes to the conflict?
0: Maybe. I think two things didn't happen here. One is that the violence didn't spill over. And we talked about this, right? Remember when we talked about Operation Guardian of the Walls and it's everything spilled over to East Jerusalem and it spilled over to, uh, tragically, to the mixed cities between Arab Israelis and, and Jews. And this is partly because Hamas was very successful In galvanizing Arab Israelis, as well as Palestinians from East Jerusalem, into the fray. Again, we we say this, Hamas didn't intervene this time. Actually, in a surreal way, if it did interfere, it was to kind of sit with the Israelis. This is very strange, right? And not sit with them physically, but try with them to pressure uh, Islamic Jihad to agree to the ceasefire. Violence didn't spill over. And something else didn't happen here, Jonathan. Israel didn't make a tragic mistake, like sometimes happens during these sort of prolonged conflicts that, you know, heaven forbid, this rocket, its trajectory hits innocent civilians in a huge number or, you know, this, this kind of thing that happens. And then Hamas wouldn't have a choice. It would have to enter this conflict and the whole world would, would be castigating Israel, This didn't happen this time. As I said, there are civilian casualties and that is always a tragedy, but Israel was always very quick to prove this time that what happened was actually a few misfires of missiles that hurt civilians and not Israeli strikes, which were very, very specific. And Israel was, I don't want to say only lucky in this, but but definitely also lucky.
1: I mean, there were obviously some... Civilians killed yes, and as we, and well. I, that, as the, yes. I mean, you're talking there about this interesting episode, or the tra- I mean, tragic episode in Jabalia, where mm-hmm.
0: uh,
1: On in that Palestinian Saturday afternoon, camp, I think mm-hmm. um, four of the four, five people four killed four
0: Palestinian me. children. Yes, yeah.
1: And Israel was very, very quick this time mm-hmm. to say, "Yes, that happened, but it wasn't us." And not, here's not the only video to evidence, say, well,
0: exactly. But to put out the the video,
1: putting out the video, and I got a text message from someone, long-time listener to our program, very involved in all of these issues, uh, who said something different going on here. It's like Israel has hired some top PR executive on, you know, multiple thousands of dollars a month because this is not how Israel normally handles it. Normally, Mm -hmm. Israel is Mm -hmm. much slower. It's much clumsier. It doesn't get the response out quickly. And this time, again, it's, you know, it's a small data set, but this time, runs the argument, that Israel got in there very quick, and it didn't catch fire in quite the same way and become an international cause celeb that Israel had killed these four children, because Israel was very quick with the rebuttal to say, it wasn't uh, Israel, it was a misfired rocket from the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Right, and not only that, there jihad. was a
0: video that came out from pilots of the Israeli Air Force targeting uh, Khaled Mansour, uh, one of the top generals of, of the Islamic Jihad, and not firing and boarding the operation three times because there were civilians around his apartment. And they put out that video as well to show again that uh, Israeli Air Force uh, and Israeli forces in general did everything in their power to avoid uh, civilian casualties. Uh, tragically, that wasn't an entire success because there are, as we said, civilian casualties. But uh, again, Israel was trying to prove its point And as you said, did it quite effectively. I, I don't know of any uh, PR person being hired, but I think that they spokesperson for the uh, IDF, the whole unit, did a pretty good job this time.
1: I wondered, It's we're going to come on to talk about him Soon, but there is a comms guy at the top of the Israeli government now in the form of a broadcaster, journalist, columnist, Yeah, Lapid. There was a pretty slick comms guy at in the, in the head of the Israeli government before in the form of Bibi mm-hmm. Netanyahu. So I don't know if we put any of this down to Lapid or whether it's something else. But it was interesting to note that Israel's communications and sort of um, PR effort mm-hmm. was different this time. All of that, I have to say, is a cue uh, for somebody like me to say... Look, I get why Israel's advocates and defenders feel pretty good about this, because it was short and sharp. The messaging was quite effective. It didn't become a core celebre in terms of international coverage, immediate, and so on. But, and it goes to how your point with the one you began us with, really, which is the sort of sheer familiarity of this and how Israelis are almost sort of now conditioned to just go into a certain mode with this which is just the the depressing quality of this which is yeah sure it can this specific one can go less or less badly or more badly than previous episodes but overall the constant groundhog day repetition of this does to me anyway underline something very depressing and sort of futile which is Sure, one operation might be more or less successful than another, but underneath it all is the fact this problem is not solved, and it's not even—it's not just not solved; it's not really even addressed. So it really does feel like looking at a a patient who is constantly dealing with the symptoms, getting ever more, you know, effective band aids, and saying, "Well, look, I've got this extra sharp band aid now that only needs to be on for two days, and look, I can whip it off, and no one screams." Isn't it great? And I'm thinking, "Yeah, fine." But there's still the problem. You're still sick. There's still a sickness here. And that is this constant blockade. It's now, what, 15 years plus of Israel, Egyptian-Israeli blockade of Gaza. Mm-hmm. And fundamentally, a, a, no political horizon at all, no conversation, a dialogue with the Palestinians who <laughs> Israel ultimately has to work this out with, they, you know, two people sharing one land. Ultimately, there's going to have to be a conversation. And I know we're a million, million miles away from that.
0: I have to say that you doing medical metaphors is much better than me trying to do sports metaphors. (laughs) So that that is the one thing we can agree upon. Um, Look, I think that the (laughs) – I'm going to use this. I'm going to sound like a Hallmark cliche, but obviously the the first stage of solving a problem is accurately defining what the problem is. And the problem is that there is a terrorist organization that is, on the one hand – a terror organization that wants to bring uh, the end of Israel. On the other hand, it is a political group that is holding or responsible for the lives of two million Gazans. Now, this is the predicament that not only Israel is in, but also these Palestinians are in. Now, what do you do about Gaza is the question. The answer, as you said, I think Israel believes like the best it can hope for us to sort of prolong the gaps between these flare-ups. We're not managing to do that, uh, quite the opposite. But what do you do? Now, of course, the Bennett government tried to change a little bit of the paradigm and say, look, we're going to give more carrots to Hamas, right? We talked about this with Shimrit Meir, who is Bennett's top aide, meaning we're going to let uh, Gazans work in Israel in large numbers. The less terror we see, the more we're going to allow it. We are going to let materials, merchandise, more and more of that to come in through uh, the Israeli border. I think Egyptians are a different issue on the other side, but we're going to allow for that. The more, again, we see uh, Hamas maybe being more and more pragmatic. So that is a first step And again, Hamas didn't enter this conflict this time, so that's important. It didn't, on the other hand, I think, do enough to kind of pull back Islamic Jihad. So that is one thing. Are we ever going to see a better future, a markedly better future for people in Gaza? That means better economic situation. That means even a port like Israelis have been talking, certain Israelis have been talking about. Are we ever going to see that? Yes, if... This terror organization, again, that is holding basically two million people hostage, will realize that that could be the future for them. I don't know how that can happen. I don't know when that can happen. But that is something that that I think Israelis uh, hope for. It is in their interest that the lives of Gazans will be better, for sure.
1: Maybe it's because I'm one. I have one foot in vacation mode, which was quick, swiftly yanked back out of your vacation mode. But you're still in your lounger.
0: I'm pulled you back in your lounger in your luxury lounger back.
1: uh, No luxury lounger here, I can tell you. But uh, I was thinking, uh, why is uh, or maybe because it's because of that. But I have one slightly more positive thought here, which is. That First of all, there were, there were those uh, below-radar signs, and, and Shimrit may have brought them above radar for our listeners, which is this thing about Gazans working inside Israel, inside the Israeli economy. I think that had happened, certainly in terms of international awareness, sort of out of sight. People weren't really fully aware of that. That is a thawing of relations that is important. Mm-hmm. But the other positive I would take from this a little bit is the fact that, and of course, it's not admitted. But there is some common interest now between Hamas and the Israeli government, whether anybody will ever admit it or say so. They were both united in wanting to thwart Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Israel, for obvious reasons, because they don't want the threat that they were preemptively striking to remove, namely of using anti-tank missiles to hit Israeli targets. But Hamas too don't want this rival. They're in a competition too, inside Gaza. And so can... That become a sort of a bit of common ground that they have a shared enemy slash rival in common, and I know, I noticed know somebody was comparing it to the wider regional dynamic where Israel has common cause with the likes of Saudi Arabia and Gulf states against Iran. Of course, Islamic Jihad a proxy of Iran. Mm-hmm. Um, could there be a similar coming together with the non-Islamic Jihad groups, namely Hamas? and Israel out of this. I don't know, maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves, but there does need to be some sort of channel of conversation which says, one way or another, we're going to have to make this work and live alongside each other. Something in the fact that Hamas did not get involved in this, I agree with you, what you said before, there wasn't a kind of flare, a spectacular provocation that would have forced them to come in. But just the glimmer there of something which can turn into a a, a connection, a point of contact, a channel of conversation.
0: Obviously, you're right about the fact that Hamas and Israel, again, in this surreal situation only the Middle East could probably provide us, were on the same side right now. They both wanted the Islamic Jihad to Agree to the ceasefire. Let's not make a mistake about what Hamas is, what the nature of it, what the ideology is, what the goal is. There's still a terrorist organization that wants to eliminate the state of Israel, and it will enter in another conflict when the timing is right for Hamas. The timing wasn't right now, and that's why they wanted to push the brakes on, on the Palestinian uh, Islamic Jihad, which in a way is a rival as well as an ally. It's a complicated relationship between Hamas and Islamic Jihad. But over time... Again, if the pressure comes from, I think, also the Palestinians in Gaza who realize that the more Israelis see quiet, the more, I think, their economic situation, civic economic uh, situation will improve. As I said, again, this is the interest not only of the Palestinians. This is also the interest, should be, and is the interest of the Israelis. I hope that that is in our future, that somehow this terrorist organization becomes more and more I guess pragmatic is the word I'm looking for. I don't see it happening right now. But, but I think that, it's. No, that is I mean, the hard thing somehow. to do
1: on this one is to hold two conflicting, contradictory thoughts in your head simultaneously, which is that it is a terror organization whose charter mm-hmm. commits them to the destruction of Israel mm-hmm. is one true set of facts. And simultaneously, that they are now also charged with the day to day government of Hamas, of, of Gaza, and want to keep mm-hmm. in power. And they are under multiple pressures, uh, you know, including economic and other pressures. And that tends to m- concentrate their mind somewhat. And that they, as we have seen over that forty-eight, you know, 72-hour period, they do have interests which can be, you know, reasoned or calculated with. Right. And so both can, all those things can be true at once. And I do have, and I've long had, partly by covering the peace process in Northern Ireland a long time ago some sympathy with the view of uh, those who say, deal with the most hardline faction in the mix because ultimately they're the ones who you have to be on board. This is ultimately what led to the logic of of peace in Northern Ireland. And even those who seem implacable and wedded to terror... They're, they will have interests that can be pragmatically appealed to. And, you know, it's a process. Mm-hmm. So I think you can hold all those sets of facts in your mind at once. I agree with you. Now is not the moment that you'd be crushingly naive to think that Hamas are ready to put flowers in their hair and, uh, you know, sing San Francisco anthems from the 1960s. That is not about to happen. I agree. Nope. But that there is a path there, that you know, that you can ultimately negotiate with sort of anybody is kind of where I come at this from. So, um Otherwise, it's just we, you know, set them the alarm clock for another repeat of this in mm-hmm. a year, nine months, 18 mm-hmm. months, who knows? But we'll all, we'll, you and I will be back here again going through the same conversation.
0: Tragically, you might be right. We should also talk about this fa- the fact that this all happens less than 90 days before an Israeli election. The prime minister is Yair Lapid, and we have talked on this program uh, more than once, about how Lapid always lacked gravitas or when it comes to... Military, right? Israel's political, uh, let's say it's ruling elites have always prided themselves, some of them, on being in combat units in the military. Definitely true for Benjamin Netanyahu and for Naftali Bennett, Benny Gantz, of course. Yair Lapid was a journalist in the military. He did not have any experience in Combat units. This is good for him. The fact that this operation was short, it was successful uh, from the Israeli point of view, gives him, you know, he scored a, a couple of uh, uh, points. So does the cooperation between him. And uh, Benny Gantz, the uh, defense minister. Remember, Lapid and Gantz, probably two men behind the ugliest divorce in Israeli politics now working together. Also good. Doesn't mean that they won't uh, be at each other's throats come uh, November. And also, Jonathan, another, I should call it historic, maybe, moment in which Lapid, current prime minister, meets with head of opposition and former prime minister his formidable foe Benjamin Netanyahu for a security briefing during this uh, operation for Lapid obviously it's very good he's on the what he would think the right side of the table he's the prime minister now briefing debriefing Netanyahu Netanyahu himself trying to show that he is a responsible adult and this is the middle of a of a conflict and a war and he will come to Lapid as as difficult as it is to him you can only imagine right to receive this uh, security briefing.
1: I just love this part of the story. Um, I have to say, the the politics of this moment, as I understand it, um, Bibi Netanyahu had previously refused to get briefings from True. Naftali True, from Naftali he didn't Bennett, like yes. the dynamic yes. at all of him going as kind of supplicant and deferring to the man in his would, chair. Would Caesar he would get
0: a security briefing from Brutus? I ask you. No, no, that's yeah. how that's how Netanyahu would see it. Yes,
1: you're not going to do it. But also, I think in terms of status, that I'm. You know if anyone's briefing anybody, I am the big man here. I will brief you, not the other way around. So that's interesting that he would accept it. Somehow he found it more palatable. You'll have to tell me why that was, but more palatable from Lapid. Maybe because he Bennett was obviously once on his team and had betrayed him. True. But also uh, maybe he thought this moment was big enough that it would look bad not to be in the mix somehow. Right. Um, there's this amusing thing about the different pictures of the event, um, right. which you know we can talk about the... So, um, each side of picture, the story,
0: exactly, put out their own official picture from Each the, one from put the their events. different
1: pictures out, and Lapid's picture shows very serious, and I'm the prime minister briefing this small opposition leader whose name temporarily escapes me. Um, <laughs> but meanwhile, the Netanyahu puts out a picture where he's, it's of them sort of laughing and smiling as if it's only a photo op. Um, no, not
0: only is it only a photo op, I'm laughing because I know that in a few months I'm going to be the prime minister, so I don't mind. that. I think right, that was the message okay, in, a, the, good, a, in Netanyahu himself kind of laughing at this meeting, right? Smiling oh, That's a deep read
1: I like that. So as if say so, like don't be fooled by this image. We all know who's in charge here. Right. Um but overall I thought look this is a this politically is a plus for Yair Lapid For all the reasons you said people would have doubts about his credentials. It reminds me a bit of that rule in American politics, which is, you know, Democrats start wars because, and Republicans don't, and that's, this is the, the logic has always been, it means it's defied by the facts, this, when you think of George W. Bush. Right. But the rule always w- was was that Democrats felt the need to prove they were tough on security in a way that a Republican felt more confident, and therefore it was Democrats who would have the itchier trigger finger. And right. I did wonder if a bit about that politics that, Netanyahu had several times in his prime ministership shown restraint and held back despite the image that actually he had not been that bellicose. And then Mm -hmm. it takes a liberal center-left Tel aviv like Mm -hmm. Yair Lapid to feel, right, let's go, bombs away. Um, And that's about the politics. But maybe, you'll tell me, is it effective when he goes into a campaign? Can he now pose as a national security prime minister come Mm -hmm. November?
0: It's, it's effective for now. The elections are almost in three months. This is a very long election season. How much of this will remain in three months? I don't know. But it's very good for for him now. I'm sure the polls would show him, you know, edging close to Netanyahu in the question who is more fit to be prime minister, for sure. But how much of this will will be left in three months? I I really don't know. Israelis usually don't tend to vote on policy towards Gaza, because they don't see huge differences between the leaders on the left or on the right. This will not be, I assume, again, maybe we're uh, going to see another uh, flare up. I hope not. But this will not be the main event Uh, during these elections in three months.
1: In which case, what what will be the agenda uh, if it's not
0: this? (laughs) Well, I can tell you that probably we're going to be talking about the economy for two and a half months and then two weeks leading up to the elections, we'll return to the age-old question, BBS or no. That will probably be, be, if you're talking about Groundhog Day vis-a-vis Gaza, I assume it's going to be Groundhog Day uh, vis-a-vis the elections as well.
1: And just, I mean, because in a way, underpinning that is a presumption that there isn't another one of these um, episodes and flare-ups. Do the, all of the security analysts, military folk you speak to, do they tell you that nobody I know will say it's solved, it's over forever, but do they put a figure on how much time they think this is for?
0: Nobody does. I mean, everyone relates to this as a tactical success. I think Israel was even sort of I don't want to say pleasantly, but definitely surprised by the these achievements. You know, again, three top generals in Islamic Jihad were assassinated in a very short period of time, so much so that when they started talks about ceasefire, it wasn't really clear who the uh, Egyptian intelligence should be speaking to because no is in charge anymore except the big boss who is in uh, Tehran. So so again, very successful, very short period of time, good for Israel. No one want, would bet all the money in their pockets on when the next flare-up will be when, you know, Hamas decides. Another thing that Israel did here was, again, take the initiative and not wait for the other side to drag Israel into the conflict. Um, No. No one will bet how long it's going to be until the next time.
1: No, I was just partly wondering about election interventions, which terror groups do sometimes make, and whether Hamas would mm-hmm. want to make themselves known once again before Israelis go to the polls. We should, because this is uh, an episode of Unholy, albeit a um, special one, do our usual thing. And if we were to be handing out awards this week for chutzpah and mench, I would want to nominate for a chutzpah award. One way or another, they've, they've had them before, but I think that <laughs> the government of Russia uh, would certainly deserve Uh, some kind of prize for chutzpah for calling on both sides in Israel and Gaza to show, quote, maximum restraint. Russia thought that they should condemn Israel's actions in the Gaza Strip, saying that Moscow is seriously concerned about a new round of armed violence in the zone of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And they thought this was another escalation provoked by Israeli airstrikes on the Gaza Strip. And they condemned it. You know, I think... The phrase pot calling the kettle black is, <laughs> is, is, is is almost too weak for the sheer brass neck here for Russia, which is involved in its own, let's just remember, um, absolute warfare in Ukraine, invasion, bombardment, uh, racking up um, thousands of deaths uh, for them to be wagging a finger and lecturing and expressing their deep concern at the resumption of a full-scale military conf- confrontation. Again, we direct people to Leah Rosten's Joys of Yiddish. Look up Hutspur, <laughs> and you may well see the text of Moscow's statement uh, in which it reaffirmed its principles and consistent <laughs> position uh, on the Palestinian I wonder if Israeli they know what restraint
0: conflict. means, if they if they, if they, the, the, they actually know what the word means. Okay, so if we were giving out uh, mensch awards, I would give it to Mayan Maimon, Jonathan. This is a mother of 10. I think just for that, she deserves the Mench Award, but specifically because she heads uh, one of the units in the Iron Dome uh, Aerial Defense Unit of the Israeli Air Force. And uh, we should say the Iron Dome system generally becoming... Incredibly accurate, this time around 96% accuracy intercepting the 1,000 rockets coming from uh, Gaza. So obviously the soldiers there, men and women, working uh, around uh, the clock. Israel not improving so much in the titles it gives its operations in Gaza. Remember, we had Cast Lead and Pillar of Defense and Protective Edge, and now we're somehow at Breaking Dawn, which I know you remember is actually a vampire
1: movie. Yes, I think I you know would remember that more than me. <laughs> but tell me if um, it's true. I know that you watch the, the movies. The, the, if the ha- some have detected the hand of Yatilapied himself. Oh in no,
0: this. I, I don't think it was him. The was uh, him? No, 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 I don't think it was him. Because no. I don't, good, I don't know th- enough.
1: But I'm told that this this had some of his literary style to it. This <laughs> is the sort of phrase. He would use, I don't know about that. I (laughs) defer, as on all things, to you on this. Um, There was actually once
0: there was this rumor that the computer chooses the names. I think the computer would, you know, choose better names. But never mind. (laughs) The actual officers in the military chose this.
1: We should um, remind people that you can talk about all of this and future editions of the podcast, what you'd like to hear, what you'd like to hear us talk about on our Facebook page, Unholy Podcast. Same is the uh, destination to find us at Instagram and our thank yous.
0: And our thank yous, of course, to uh, Gaia Glazer, Omer Primat, Rom Atik, and Irad Eschel. Jonathan, we shall return you to your lounger. Life is all about choices, Mr. Friedland. You can either choose to be a journalist or to have a normal vacation. So good luck with that. Next week, we will be back with uh, an episode of a conversation we loved, and we hope everything will be quiet on the home we, frontier. We really do. For
1: everyone involved, we really hope for some quiet. And see you then.
0: See you. This podcast is brought to you by cyber attacks can be prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.